Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. The show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Uncle Dr. Dan Edelman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. It's an honor for me to have you on. just want to say that. And it's an honor that you listen to the show. Without any further ado, let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself, both professionally and your religious background. So religiously, I grew up in a very traditional home. We uh, kept all major holidays, well, except for Shavuos, which most traditional don't. But when I was in high school, uh, we moved to Frederick, Maryland. I was an army brat, and my father was a, a medical doctor in the U.S. military. And from there, we became very much engaged with the Jewish community in Frederick, Maryland. And with the Cosman family, Rabbi Cosman was the rabbi there for over 50 years and the grandfather of your, your husband and the spiritual grandfather of dozens, dozens. And through that NCSY, the family became more observant. I was the first one to lead the charge. And uh, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was already Shoma Shabbos and then uh, headed off to uh, Yeshiva at Or Sameach for the summer of uh, 79. Actually, that's another whole Hashgacha story. Maybe not for now. And from uh, Or Sameach, went to Ner Yisrael, and then back to there at Yisrael for, for Yeshiva in Sharikhaim and Torah Or. And got married in 83 to your Tata Rissel, who was the youngest of the, the Cosman siblings. And that was our start in the, in the Kalu life. I learned in color for five years, and I was just thinking a little bit about, you know, we, we had said, okay, this is about women in science, and I was realizing the other morning that this is a bigger, bigger issue. And this is an issue of how every Jew needs to find their own voice in their voter session. And I was remembering how my mentor, who was the Meshkech at the time, Rav Moshe Eisman, you should be well, your Aunt Marissa's uh, father. So he, he had come to the yeshiva, and I was in Eretz Yisrael and basically told some of the Hanhala to be careful with me. And Why? Because he saw in me that I had a different path than a full-time learner. I wanted to teach desperately. I enjoyed it tremendously. But and as much as I love Torah and enjoy the learning of Torah, I'm doing Dafiomi now since this cycle, I was not cut out to be a full-time long-term learner. Most people I mean, aren't. Most people aren't. But I thought it was. Even if they're exceptional people. First of all, I, I, as a Balchuva, I had that brand, right? And there was this fire to be like so many others and to go to the extreme. But 
at a certain point, we had come back to the States and I had spoken to Rav Yaakov Weinberg. This is like taking years and compressing it into very short, which is just full of, of stories in its own right. So Rav Yaakov Sal uh, said, I told him what I wanted to do. I was trying to learn for smicha as for Mishabura and with Rav Moshe Metz. And, and he basically told me, no, Dan, it's time for plan B which is, was incredibly courageous of him because he saw in me that my, my natios really were to be uh, led elsewhere. So then I went for prerequisites and used my BTL, got a master's in applied molecular biology in 93, worked as a, a research associate and technologist for many years, investigating prion disease and infectious disease oncology in, in clinical laboratories. In 97, I started my PhD work, my dissertation. I always like to understand why things work mechanistically in nature and even within the, the realm of Torah. If you can, if I understand how we got to a certain point in Halakha, Halakha was always a natia for me. I enjoyed it tremendously because just my, that's my nature. So got a PhD, but at the time I was working both as a research associate and as a graduate student. Started in 97, finished in 2005, so almost eight years. And that was with wife and family. Would I do it again? I'm going to say I would do it again because the outcomes from that have been tremendous. But it was, it was just so hard. And actually, my program at the time at University of Maryland, Baltimore, they shut down any possibility of someone doing both at the same time after that. They, they just saw it was just not compatible with life. <laughs> so yeah. it was not fun. So with, with my PhD, that opens up a lot of doors that you don't have if you have a master's or a bachelor's. So I worked for the Food and Drug Administration as a reviewer for major devices for microbiology. Then, boy, let's see. Then I got the opportunity through networking, which actually is part of what we're, we'll be talking about here, to be a laboratory manager at the NIH, National Cancer Institute. And I did that for 13 years. And what our laboratory did is we supported all the clinical trials and at the National Cancer Institute's clinical trials. And then I went back to the FDA for three years, and now I'm back at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, helping clinical trials in early cancer detection. But that's just behind the scenes. Why and if you can dumb it down what you do day to day for your non-scientist person, what is it? We are supporting uh, the development of a blood test for cancer detection and the development of the clinical trials to prove that they actually are safe and they save lives. And your involvement is? I'm a program officer, which means I oversee a lot of putting together clinical trials, working with the companies, trying to understand you know, who's going to be the best fit for that and uh, to shepherd things along. And also because I have regulatory experience from the Food and Drug Administration, I can put some of that information, that knowledge, and maybe short circuit some of the regulatory pain that that everyone's going to have to go through in order to bring these these tests to market. That's that's the hope. Mm -hmm. And we should state right that everything I express here is my own opinion and not that of the U.S. government. They're very adamant on that. <laughs> so, very, yeah. and we will not be questioning anything of. Of the FDA or NIH, I know there are a lot of skeptical people, especially post-COVID. That's not the topic for today. And I did invite you on back then, and you were not at liberty to come and comment. 
and then makes sense. Our topic for today specifically is your incredible program. And I call it incredible because you are behind it and your passion for this program is behind it, which makes it really special. So I'll have you introduce it and talk to us a little bit about that. Okay, so this was a, a what you could call a bridge program or what we called a mentor pathway into the sciences for women who have a week at, in terms of education and in terms of experience in terms of having the necessary uh, knowledge and skills to enter the, the realm of science. This is currently not really so active. So let me take a step back many years. This started back in 2009 when I had a from young lady in my lab as a summer intern. And she wanted to go into the sciences, very interested in biology. She was definitely a black sheep amongst her base Yaakov class. And she knew it. And she had unfortunately seen many girls, let's say, get weaker in terms of their observance by stepping into the secular world. She did not want that to happen to her. We spent hours outside of the realm of science, but just talking about what does it mean to be religious and, and in science? Hours. And then more hours. And then more hours. And uh, we realized, I realized there is just nothing out there to help them. There's just nothing out to help these girls. She ended up actually getting her law degree and becoming a patent attorney in the sciences. And as patent attorney, I believe, last I heard for Pfizer. We're talking about vaccines. So she's very successful with that. So that's how she ended up using her love of biology, but she did it in the realm of law. And law allowed her to be in a Jewish environment and not be a black sheep. Could you explain it to me? Because to me, if I think of your average base Yaakov graduate, she's going into OTPT, PA, speech therapy, and those yep. all sound like scientists to me, who's a non-scientist. So they are there. I'm not, I don't recall now why she chose law. One of the benefits of, of law is that it's, there's a kitzvah, there's a certain amount, three years and you're done, which if you want to start a family, is very helpful. If you want to go into medicine, it's less helpful, which is why a lot of girls go, let's say, PT and OT route, because they know after a couple of years, you've done your education, you can start working. Law provided the same thing for her. She's exceptionally intelligent, and I think that just, maybe that's what, the logic of law. And what about the non-Jewish environment and being worried about that? Haven't heard of a Jewish law school in America yet. <laughs> so I was in touch with her during those years, uh, off and on. Why you? Yeah. If you don't have an answer, we could just move on. It's fine. Yeah. Anyways, so in, 20, in 2012, I got a phone call from the biology teacher at the North High School here in Baltimore. And she says she has this wonderful young lady who wants to go into science. And do I have any any openings in the lab? Or how can we get them engaged in science? And I thought I've been waiting three years for this phone call. Because now I had the opportunity to actually build a... I had, on one side, I had I had a school. On the other side, I had NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And then we would be the bridge. And hopefully that would create some sort of mechanism for girls to go from the insular Orthodox Jewish society into the secular world and how to, how to navigate that. Um, it's funny enough, that girl ended up being uh, my daughter-in-law. So it's a nice, interesting hashgacha there, how that worked. And so we started it, the first summer we had was in 2013. And basically what this was is that we said to, we, we stepped back and we said, look, do they have any professional experience? 
By and large, no. Do they have any deep science knowledge? By and large, no. Do they know what they want to do in science? Again, by and large, no, except they all wanted to do neuro neurology because that's all they had learned in high school. So they were gang, you know, gangbusters for, for neurology. So they did not know what they did not know. And I felt it was my responsibility to show them there's a much broader world of life science, biomedical science out there. I wanted to short circuit the pain a little bit of them deciding what they were going to do if indeed they wanted to go into science. In the outside world, you could go to college for four years and then just drag along a little bit and finally decide what you're going to do and then get married in the early 30s. In our culture, that doesn't, that usually doesn't work that way. At least the plan is not to do it that way. So I wanted to help them make their decisions on a much more informed basis and more quickly. The other thing we had to deal with was there was a great fear and why you don't see a lot of from women in science, in, well, research science. There's from women, you see some doctors, decent amount, and you'll find also like the OTs and the PAs. But in terms of like going into research and in that world, I have met less than three and in my career. And men, from men? Can you? For men, much more. Much more. But for and women, very few. And secular or non-Jewish women also equally go into the sciences like men do? There you'll find about 50-50, men to women. Actually, the first uh, lady that I met, I didn't even think she was religious because I just assumed that all religious, you know, all, all women who are in the sciences uh, were not religious. And she was, and she was wearing a shaitol, and I couldn't believe it. It was like, it was an Aristotle conference. So they're afraid because what are you stepping into? The parents are afraid because they're sending their daughters out into the, you know, the, the difficult world, the secular world. And there's a lot in the secular world that is an antithesis to a Torah lifestyle. And be it uh, the gender, the gender mixing, be it the whole issue with evolution, which is definitely out there. The whole business with diversity and inclusion is definitely an issue out there. So we needed to have a metric pathway to guide them through this whole thing. And how's diversity and inclusion an issue um, for, for women? For, see, see, that's interesting because we were able to actually use that to our benefit. Okay. Of course. Okay. Um, think about this like this. Orthodox Jewish women, um, you could, let's consider them. There's, there was a paper out, I forget the author now, but she called um, Jewish women in science a hidden diversity because legally, Orthodox Jewish women are not a legal minority. We'll get to that issue in a little bit, perhaps. So therefore, there's no specific legal pathways to, to create a, um, a structured program for them in the, in the sciences, certainly in the federal government. So whereas you could do that, there are people who are uh, poverty line issues, um, African-Americans, things like that. So why is that um, an uh, issue for from women? It depends on uh, what kind of woke culture is being exposed, they're being exposed to. If everyone is, is going to be the same and everything goes and there are no boundaries, then that is an antithetical to a Torah lifestyle. So that, had, that just has to be navigated. No more examples? Not from that. One of the other issues we could have, theoretically we had was, oh, one of the big issues was, uh, I was talking to a training director once and about the problem and she said, if, you know, if we don't create a venture pathway for these young ladies, they don't stand a chance of getting any kind of summer internship. 
because they don't have the skills, they don't have the biology backgrounds, they don't have the experience. As a lab director, I was I saw all the, the different types of, of applications that came across. For example, let me give you an idea. So in the course of a summer, over 8,000 students would apply for summer positions at the National Institutes of Health. Only 1,000 would get it, about 18%, right around there. Right? And these are Depending students the in college, undergrad, studying biology. They could be any, as long as they're over 16. So you had some 11, 12th graders, but mostly undergrads. But they're undergrads from Harvard, Yale. I saw these. I saw these resumes. Okay. They could not get positions. Now, there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes you just have to ask the wrong investigator. But many times it's because some people don't get it because they don't have the right niche expertise that an investigator is looking for. A lot of times it's because they're not qualified, whatever it might be. That's usually not the Harvard people, at least then. So there was just no way that a, a Basiakov girl coming with a biology class and a chemistry class has the necessary credentials. So what were we going to do? So we decided we'll sidestep the whole issue and create a separate pathway for a first year program for the girls. And they would be special volunteers and we would just show them everything we possibly could. We would teach them professional etiquette. It could be something, well, I'll just, I'll throw some things out. One thing I remember, we were sitting in a class once and one of the girls took out her notebook, her lab notebook, and she was taking notes. And I was looking around and I was looking, no one else here is taking notes on their lab notebooks. Because usually what you're doing is you're attentive to the person who's speaking and you're, there's a hierarchy in science. And so later on, I spoke to her about it, that even though I know we know what she was doing, but everyone else looking at her does not necessarily know what she's doing. She could have been you know, doing Google searches, who knows? So that was one example. Other thing is, let's see, deadlines. Let's say you have an assignment and your mentor gives you an assignment that's due Monday at two o'clock. And Monday at two o'clock passes and the mentor doesn't hear from the mentee and doesn't hear for hours until the next day. I had to explain to them that is not proper professional etiquette. You need to let your mentor know that you're going to be late with your assignment. Another issue we ran into is Fridays, because Fridays are going to be short, even in the summer. The girls had to leave at three. A lot of them were coming back to Baltimore. How do you handle that? All right, how do you handle that issue? So we had to preempt that. We had a culture, what we called a cultural awareness sheet. And in that, we talked about various things. For example, language that the girls did not curse or lie, which I can tell you was one of the bigger comments we ever got back. What? You've never cursed once in your entire life? <laughs> they just, you know, the outside world, that's just common. So the culture sheet was made for the rest of the environment to digest so they understand who they're meeting. Yes. Got it. Like a little handbook. Okay. That's what it was. It was one sheet and it had like five different things. One was for Shabbos. Another one was for language. Another one was for demeanor. Another was for dress. The girls, middle of the summer. Demeanor, shaking hands, hugging. We had the Nagia thing. We had the whole thing with the shaking the hands. Um, we had to be a little careful actually with the, the shaking the hands thing. Because a lot of people do it and you don't want to. Well, no, because there are rebutting who will allow for professional reasons to shake hands. So basically, we basically would, would tell people, don't expect, you know, to be offered a hand, okay? 
But I told each girl she has to ask, basically ask her own Shiloh for her own Ross. If they were in a group, no shaking hands. But individually, then yes, depending what their their rope would tell them to do. Casual touch was an issue. The hand on the shoulder, the hand all around the shoulder, on the arm, these types of things, which in the outside world is could be very innocuous. We asked to Shyla. I have 17 pages of Shyla's and Shuvas, and that was what we asked. And it was like, what should the girls do? You know, if the guy comes over and puts his hand on, on her arm, what should she do? Did she freak out at the first moment? And it was no. Just let it go first time. If it happens a second time, then you have to say something, you know, you're basically invading my space in a, in a nice way. And uh, they had to create the boundaries. That was part of what we were trying to do is word of the boundaries. So the cultural awareness sheet was trying to preempt any difficult situations. Now, it's, it's funny that she got me in trouble once because I sent it out to an instructor who called me back very irate. He says, are you implying that I curse? I was <laughs> saying... I was saying, uh, no, that was not my intention at all, but I could understand how, uh, how he read it the way he did. And so I had to alter the language just a little bit. We also had another one where before we would mention they weren't the girls, we had to add in that they went touch with men, underlined and in italics, because there was somehow this got out that even women wouldn't be touching them. And they would bump into them and say, excuse me or something, you know, and so we had to correct that problem also. It was a learning. Okay, and then you said Shabbos. All right, so Shabbos was, um, well, you have to wonder be a problem in the summer, but Shabbos was a problem in terms of them, in terms of not the first year girls. If they, asked, if, if they came back for another summer uh, where they're working full time in a laboratory themselves, then they needed to have a Shabbos discussion with their principal investigator, their PI. And usually what I told the girls was, don't bring it up on the initial interview. Once you're accepted into it, then you politely, you know, explain how you're going to need to take off early on Fridays and that any work need that needs to be done, you're going to make sure that it gets covered either by someone else in the lab or you'll work harder the days before, but that the investigator should not be concerned that the, the work is not going to get done. So the girls were exposed to safety protocols. They rotated and learned all kinds of things from electron microscopy. I, I got to show you a picture. This, okay. is, this is part of the excitement of this was sharing the science with all the girls. Okay. I still remember once, Shane Billy for Goldfest, we were looking at doing laser capture microscopy. This is where you use a laser to cut out tissue so you can select the specific cells that you want. And I still remember the highlights of all the years was the girl, I was sitting in the back of the room and the girls were taking their turns, cutting out hearts and doing whatever they're doing on the tissue. And then she turns and looks at me, she's Dr. E, would you like to take a look? And she wanted to share that excitement with me. And for me, that was, that was such a, an incredible moment that they understood how excited I was about the science. I don't know if this is gonna come through or not. Let's see, we're gonna try. Let's try. Let's see here. Okay, yeah, not so bad. It looks like a key. Okay, what do you think that is, Freddy? A key? Looks oh, like a hexagon with a line attached to it. Right, so we got a hexagon head on the top, and we have a stalk, and the bottom is a base with some tendrils coming off. This is actually a, a bacteriophage. It's a virus that infects bacteria. And that was taken with an uh, electromagnetic uh, scope, 
that is 372,000 times its size. So in science, you have this incredible privilege of seeing this amazing world that HaKadosh Baruch has given us that 99.9% of the people in the world don't see. It's an amazing thing. And I want I, those who have that nitya and who have that desire, I would like to provide them the, the means and the ability to do that. Here, I'll show you another one. You might have seen the something. People like listening that. can't see this. They can't see that? Oh, I mean, I could create a anyway, clip, so that, but the people who are going to be listening to it are not going to see this. Like I'm too? Oh, can you like when you're pictures? driving, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's a, it, was a, um, it was a wonderful um, picture of uh, pollen. It looks like a monster. Or pictures I'd work, I did in my, in my PH dissertation work of, of a cell and viruses budding out of it. And you just sit there and you look into this microscope and you just can't believe how privileged and grateful you are that, that you can actually see what, what you've been given. So I wanted the girls to have this, this opportunity also. Let's step back and talk a little bit about the fear factor. All right, so there's a couple issues that we're coming in through. One, as, as Jews, we have a historical, we have this historical knowledge of, and we're just living through it again these days, that the outside world does not necessarily look at us very favorably. So therefore, we try to become insular. Uh, Rabbi Lord uh, Jonathan Sachs wanted to change that. He wanted us to engage with the world. I actually invited him to come speak to the girls once, and he was booked. So I very much like uh, his, it's still hard to listen to him now, after these, despite these intervening years since his patira. But he was a person who was able to take that, to make the outside world understand us and see the value in Judaism. We'll get back to that. Then we also have practical concerns. How does a young lady who wants to start her family in her early 20s go into the sciences? when it's not like two years in Malot and you're done. How does that happen? So we had to create a structure that they learned. They learned how that's possible. Funny enough that a lot of the female scientists who are in their early 30s, mid-30s, are going through the same thing that our girls would go through in their early 20s. They're starting to have their kids, they're starting to have their family, they need to find the babysitter. When the kid's sick, what happens to the experiment? How does that handle? Right? Same, but you would have the same question early. And then just the cultural differences, be it speech, be it walking in and there's an Xmas tree in the lobby, um, to be all different types of things. What's talked about at the lunch table. And sometimes you just want to get up and walk away. Really. I would tell a couple of girls, don't go to that lunch table. Because I know what was going to be talked about there. You just don't go. So we had to deal with those. We had to deal with those uh, those types of things. Let's talk about the idea of Rabbi Sachs being engaged with the world. This idea of fear is fear turns into victim, and you're not proactive. And I tried to instill into the, the girls that that we have so much to offer from our Yiddishkeit and from our connection to the Torah and our connection to God, that we should be walking down the halls of the clinical center and giving out brachas. We should bless every sick person we see. The guy in the wheelchair, you should get better, sir. Have a wonderful day. All right, the person walking down with crutches, all right, wish them a good day and give them a blessing for good health. 
it, it should just, that's what we can do. And that's just one aspect of, of the positiveness that we can, we can supply to the world. There was also, we saw that all these girls had an incredible chain about them. One of the training directors said that, I just love them. And then she paused and said, but I don't know why. And it was because there was, there is just, there's this chain. And there was a, a niceness and a tamimus about them. And that naivety actually uh, helped, I think, really helped them want to be helped and want to be uh, shepherded along. The other idea of strength comes from standing your ground and your values and your morals. So there could be the ideas of touch, communities of speech. Uh, people would start apologizing around them when they cursed because they realized that this is not something I should be doing around this special person. So by the time the summer, end of the summer would roll around, we had a very special day called the NIH Poster Day. Maybe, let's say, between 10 and 30 girls, depending on the year, would be presenting posters. Now, if you've never done, done a poster before in a scientific format, so it's about four by six, and um, you take all your information, all your data, and the work that you've done during the summer, and the girls would, would create a, a poster. You would have your abstract, you'd have your methods, you would have your, uh, your results, your conclusions, for example, and a whole bunch of images and stuff. But they would have to become the, the, the experts in what they were presenting. If there was something on there they did not know, then either become the expert or don't put it on there. And they were terrified the first time. By the time two hours rolled around at the end, they did not want it to end. Because the sense of accomplishment and sharing of their science and, and confidence that that built they never experienced anything like that before in their lives. And then that just fed. That's just so, that's just starts snowballing. And when an investigator who comes by and congratulates them on what they did, I just remember being at some of these and awed. You, you could take a young lady who, who had trouble with her interview with me in the fall before the summer, and you, you stand in the back, you see her presenting her poster, and you wonder, is this the same person? that I interviewed so many months ago. Incredible sense of accomplishment. Just grateful to Rabban Shulman that it was part of that, uh, that growth. How many women have gone through this program? Over 60. They have gone on to different fields. We could have anyone who about, I would say roughly 10% have not gone into science, one form or another. But there have been others that we have maybe half a dozen who are in med school. Two, I know, are in their fourth year. They're finishing up. They're interviewing for residency. We have several who are finishing second years, first year. A few others are applying. It's hard. It's hard. And they need to have a support system. And they need to know when to ask for help. And they have to have a husband, if they're at that point in their lives, who's going to be so supportive of this vision that they have for themselves and the, the change that they want to create in the world through being, let's say, a medical doctor. There's at least two that have PhDs. There are two or three with PAs, one OT, a slew who are nurses. A few are going for their nurse practitioners now degree after becoming regular nurses. There's one who got her BA now is just doing bench work, science work. I hope she'll move on. All these women are from the Maryland area? No. So we had from like seven or eight different states. Let me tell you how that happened. Seven, eight different states, 15 different schools. 
at one point. I'm not sure what the final total ended up being, but what happened is, is that everything started in Baltimore from Benos and Basiakov. We only got a few from Basiakov, but most were Benos. And then word of mouth spreading. We had a, you're going to love this. So we had an article in the Mishpacha family first, Freddy. <laughs> we made it in 2015. So uh, that article was great. So a couple of girls came to us because of that article, just explaining what was going on then. What in the world were we doing? But it was a venture pathway where we could show that we were taking the Torah with us to the secular world, to the National Institutes of Hope. I really need to do another round of what is everyone up to. Uh, we published a paper in twenty end of 2020 on this whole program. And that was big because that was the first time it ever came out in a peer-reviewed journal that there's such a thing existed as Orthodox Jewish women wanting to go into science and there needs to be a metropathy for them. Had been dealt with before. I, now, three years later, four years later, we need another. We need to know what happened. The 59 girls in that cohort, what happened to them? Why did they make the decisions they chose to do? If they decided not to go into science, why? I know several girls who chose career paths that I didn't expect them to. Why? And I, one why is because of family, kids, that'll change it for you. But for others, did it. So why for one young woman did it? Well, I'd like to know. You want the data. I like the data and understand yeah. it. Because at some point, we need a mentor pathway. For women now, you know, I'm still getting uh, requests for help. I have a follow-up if you're ready for it. Please, please. Why do the young women need this kind of mentorship more than young men? Or is your hashkafa not to help men to go into science? Or is it that men don't need this kind of training and pathway into the sciences? Tell us. Tell us yeah, your bias. <laughs> All right. So I have been told by, uh, I, I have a colleague who's uh, from colleague down at that age who, who, who would just get on me about this and say, why aren't you doing this for the guys too? There you go. That was a simple way to ask that. <laughs> Yeah, the guys need it too. The, 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 what's the difference? The, the difference is I think there's less of a fear factor for the guys to do it than for the girls. For example, if you're in Israel, you can get into a pre-med program, and which gets you all the way up to med school. As far as I know, I don't think they have that, unless Witt Malot is starting that now in Baltimore because they have a lab now. I'm not sure. I think there's also a greater sense that the guys have a stronger foundation in, in Torah than the women do. I mean, they have might only have one year of seminary, now you're throwing them out into the wild world, whereas the guys might have been learning for three or four years before they start stepping out into the world. They're starting younger. Girls are starting younger, yeah. And why? Why? Because they're ticking clocks. They're, their biological clocks well, are ticking, got to get them married, and they need to be able to support their husbands in learning. There you go. That's why. Yeah, there's that cultural pressure. So that same cultural pressure then also fights against them pursuing a, a scientific career that is really matting for them, that they want to follow, but it's pushing them back. I was talking to a, a young lady who is in Stern, who's, I think she spent one summer at NIH. And I was talking to her, but she wasn't sure about med school. She wants to do med school, another, another. And I finally said to her, I said, tell me, are you getting pressure from your family to start going out and dating and get married? And she said, yes. And she thought that would short circuit her, her desire to go to med school. So there's definitely that pressure there. There's no question. 
how can we help them? Move them along that path faster, expose them to more science faster, help them understand the vicissitudes of dealing with the outside world faster, give them the mentorship to make the best decisions for themselves faster. Are you familiar with Joma and do you have any affiliation with them? Yeah, actually, the I think the chief financial officer, chief operating officer is one of my girls. Uh, Shane Dilley for Gold Chess. Yeah, she's fourth year. Okay. And do you have involvement? No, no. I have not been. She's fourth year med school. I think it's an exclusively female group. It's very female run. Yeah, very female. Not to say that I don't wouldn't mind being a fly in the wall at some of their meetings and things. Yeah, and I think they actually have guys show up at some of their, their conferences or dinners or something. But there's wonderful women running that. But that is medicine, very medicine. And I was it's not research. To, not research. And actually, I just heard from an MD at the FDA who's from, who told me she knows nothing that's going to help a, a young lady who wants to go into research. There is no structured thing for them, like Joma, right? which right. is fantastic. But even Joma, right, four years ago, it didn't exist. Five years ago, it did not exist. So that's also relatively new. They're doing fantastic work. I'm just so proud. Yeah. I'm grateful. Very grateful that they're there. Question. Isn't going to research a little bit safer in terms of fear factor than going into medicine? What's your assumption based on? Meaning when you do residency and you're an intern, you have to take whatever shifts they give you. I would assume in a lab hmm. might be nine to five or maybe nine to nine PM, but no. You have to be there no, around the clock. Not in grad school, not postdoc. No. You, you're really expected to put in more than 40 hours a week. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and which is why it's really critical that when a person chooses a, a mentor for their dissertation work, let's say, that they are family friend friendly. If indeed the person working in that lab is family friendly, if they're going to start the family later on, then it doesn't affect them really much. But for Orthodox Jewish girls, they would definitely have to find someone who's going to be supportive of them. And I know one situation where the young lady got married and she ended up stage just, I think, with, with a master's. She did not go for a PhD. She had to cut it short. So it's hard. It's hard. So the benefit of the PhD, and if I, get a, I have a choice to recommend, and you want to support a husband in Kolel, for example, is to go the PhD route. Because in the sciences, at least, the life sciences, you get a stipend, which is pays more than a basic salary. And uh, at least to, that's helpful. And then you end up with a PhD, one or two year postdoc, and then hopefully you can get a decent associate professorship or you go into industry and your, your earning potential is so much higher. Or are you going to what? Industry. Industry, industry, right. A regulatory work. Government. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover that we didn't in terms of big questions before we go into stories? I think one of the other things that's very important that we worked on is what the girls had to write what I called a why statement. I had to understand why they're coming into science. Uh, what was their passion? What was driving them? I very much try to live, as you know, already to start with why. Simon Sinek, start with why. Go to Hiles and go to your what's. Why were they applying? They were missing out on an entire summer of fun in a camp. They're going to have to work full long days, come home or wherever they're going to be staying, boarding for the, the summer. And they're going to spend another hour or two reading research papers and writing in their journals. Why would they do that? They can have fun. 
I also had to be sure that they were not running away from their Yiddishkeit towards science to take its place. They had to be really strong in their Yiddishkeit or running away from another bad situation. And this was just an outlet for them to escape where they were. I had a few. So that's that was important. And you would reject yeah. them? Or we would just come to an understanding that this is probably not what's best for them. They also had to be mature enough. This this is an interesting one. You know, you can get some really, really smart girls and all of them. And are they mentorable? I don't know if that's a word. But because I'm, I, I need to take someone who is going to listen to me. That's why they're coming into this. They have to trust me. They don't have to trust me. I had to earn that. But th at a certain point, if I recommended something, they had to be open to hear what I had to say. But if some felt they had it all figured out, and I usually sensed that, I did not let them into the program. They learned the lesson, and then they came back a second summer, and they got in because they understood what they, what they needed to be. So, so this idea of earning trust actually is really important because who's Dan Edelman? All right, first of all, I'm a guy, right? That's one, that's one thing working against me. But number two is that they don't owe me from Adam. And so why should I be trusted? Would you send your daughter to me? Was, what would you need to know in order to do that? So I had to build trust. And we did that several different ways. First thing we did is open and honest communication. We had pre-meetings several pre-meetings, we had a meet and greet with the parents, where the parents were there with their girls, and we went over everything together. The parents could ask plenty of questions. It did help that Benos Yisrael and the Manal Ravit Stengel were supportive of this. No question about it. They had to go with eyes wide open. I let them know that, look, you know, this is what you could be dealing with. And that we also had a fail-safe. If anyone felt uncomfortable with me, they could go to their biology teacher in the beginning years, right? There's someone else they could always go to and speak to, or they could go speak to their principal, whatever it might be. I was fine with that. There was uncomfortableness. Or the parents could go to the principal. I got messages from time to time, something that their parents were uncomfortable with. And I would ask the Shiloh. Like, for example? Taking pictures. In other words, I wanted to document this entire thing. I wanted to picture the girl standing over the, the microscope or in the lab coat. I wanted to, I wanted a picture to document this because this had never been done before, right? And if I wanted to promote it in the next year, I want to have look. This is what we did, or at the end of the summer or two years later to put together a, a collage or some. We have even one or two books we put together picture books. Well, look what you accomplished. And one of the parents did not like that, and uh, so I asked the Shyla, and I was told it was fine to do. So we kept doing it. Gadarim was set into place. Vada Rabbanan of the school offered suggestions for certain Gadarim uh, that we put into place. And NIH also put Gadarim into place. For example, NIH does not allow an investigator to transport an intern from their home to the campus. They also don't like when you have meetings in your own home with, with interns, which was natural for, for us to do. We're all one nice, happy community, and it's very convenient. But they didn't like that at all, and that, that ended up stopping. So we hit Qadar. Are all the programs, labs, and classes at NIH, or do you have a separate location? Yeah, yeah so, so really this all happens at the, at the NIH, National Institute oh. for the summer. But remember, we're dealing with a, with a cohort of young ladies who did not have the scientific background. 
So we had Sunday meetings during the school year in which I had speakers come in to try to expand their scientific knowledge. We were working on scientific articles so they'd be more comfortable with reading a scientific article before they showed up at that age. And the NIH did not like that either. And they, at least I couldn't do it. But it, for a couple of years, we had that. But mainly it's, it's all, but everything revolved to get to the summer and have a successful summer program. That the girls could walk away from that feeling accomplished. It was, it was amazing. It was just amazing. Did it stop? So it, st- it stopped with COVID. The last really full summer was, was 2019. 2020, we had some girls coming. Then COVID hit. And then I left the NIH. And I went to FDA, which really doesn't have a very strong, robust summer program for this type of thing. And some of the girls went back on their own merits for one or two years. Just goes to show you. And you had the power to approve or reject them? Or somebody else accepted them? Only for the ones that went into the first year program, where I was their primary investigator, and they did all the rotations. But if they came back for a second year, that was up to their investigator in whose lab or clinic that they went into. They had to submit their resume and their cover letter, and they had to go for interviews, and they had to earn it. And with you, they don't have to earn it? They could start uh, from... Uh, no, they had to earn it. We had a couple of layers of earning. One was with the why statement that I had to really make sure they had a passion for science and they weren't just coming because they could figure out anything else to do with their life and really they wanted to maybe go into accounting. I was not interested in that. They had to have an interview in which I wasn't the only one necessarily there at the interview. I always tried to have at least one other person. So I wasn't just myself making the decision that they were fit. I sent them a, a sheet of questions that they had to fill out a whole bunch of answers, didn't return back. One of the questions, right, which we sort of touched on was, what does your Yiddishkeit mean to you? Because they had to take their Judaism with them to the NIH. And we helped them with that. That was a big one. One of the girls responded, that's like asking me, what does my heart mean to me? I'm thinking to myself, okay, she's in. <laughs> it was like, okay, I got so it. You had to be um, on a certain from level. But, you know, even with that, the gr- not all the girls were on the same level of the from kite. For example, the parents who called who didn't like the pictures. There were some of the girls, everyone had to dress properly. I really tried to stay away from that. But we did tell them <laughs> that they had to dress in form. But not everyone, you know, all a little bit different. You know, if I had any concern, I went to their biology teacher, a female chiropractor in the community. I said, do you see any problem with this? You know, because, Freddie, remember, these girls are coming down not as individuals. They are representing Orthodox Judaism. They are representing the Roshul. So just what one person does affects everybody in this situation. Because they're going to look at it as that's one Jew, then all the Jews are the same. So we had to be careful. What else happened? So they had oral questions they'd answer, had written questions they'd answer in order to make the grade to, to come into the program. So it stopped? There's no one coming for the summers that's from that I'm aware of. Now, there are a couple of girls down there right now. There's two girls who are from down there right now. One is a trainee. who's there for one or two years. Um, there's another girl who is actually a genetics counselor who spent one year at the till end there as a trainee. She went on to get her master's in genetic counseling, and now she's working down at the NIH. And there's a few, two other girls who are Jewish, and they're searching. They're not sure where they want to go, but they need support. 
They need Jewish support because we understand each other. So there's such a need for this mentorship. And it's not just in terms of person's religiosity. It's just having this cultural awareness and understanding and you know, the safety. Safety is a big thing. Can we talk about safety? Let's talk about safety. We had the fear factor. Let's transition to a vignette. So one of the big issues, and this was also to, to lay any fears from the parents, was that if anything happened where a, a young lady did not feel safe emotionally, physically, spiritually, it had to be brought to our attention. It had to be. It was one of the guidelines that we had in the program. Because that way, the parents would know that if something happened, there would be recourse, where it would be dealt with, it would be swept under the rug. So it could be something as simple as, okay, let's say a young lady was in a rotation and some guy cursed or whatnot. She felt comfortable with it. We would have weekly chats. Uh, we called them Benos chats. And she would say, yeah, I was with this, uh, the, with this one class and this guy cursed and whatnot. And we would all say, everyone would talk about it, how to deal with it. Was it going to be a continued issue or not? And the other part was to say, this was wrong. This is not who we are. To acknowledge it, don't sweep it under the rug. This is how we're going to deal with it. This is not our cultural preference or the way we live is torches. So one of the more extreme examples was, um, so a young lady was sitting in the library and she noticed this one guy looking at her. And I don't remember the entire story, but next thing you know, he drops off a note next to her. So the note said something to the extent that, that he finds her attractive and would it be willing to meet, something like that. Okay, which, and it was like, all right. So then the, the girls show up by Mincha. We have a daily Mincha, Minyan. We have a mechitza there in our davening room. And after that's done, so the, the young lady comes over to me and tells me, shows me the note. And everyone else, all the girls are gagging, gag of girls around that say, okay, what, how is this going to fall? What's going to happen here now? What's, gonna, what's Dr. E going to say? And I looked at the note, and of course, it's quite shocking. It wasn't overt in any way, but, it, you know, we're not be passing notes in Beshako like that. So uh, I told her, okay, you let me know if it happens again. Meantime, I did my due diligence on the other side. I checked, I can't remember who I checked with at the NIH, but I did go to my Rav. That's why I have 17 pages of Shilas and Judas. How am I supposed, how should I handle this from a Torah, from a Torah viewpoint? And he said, you know, that there's nothing wrong in his eyes that he did. In the outside culture, passing the note is acceptable. And I said, yeah, so what do we do? So basically it was, if the guy was gonna do it again, she would, you know, just let him know, politely, you know, thank you very much for the attention, but no thank you type of thing. And I don't think it ever happened again because she, you know, avoided the library after that. But that was, that was a huge deal for the girls. But how do you handle that? So we sat down, we talked about it at the chat, and this is what the Rav said, and this is how you would handle it. And so that was, that was one situation. What else are cases of safety? And I got to Davin in that shul at NIH with your minion when I came. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember meeting Menachem there once. Were you there also then? You had your cousin. Your cousin was there. Yeah. I remember. So that's still going on. And one of these girls, I just spoke the other, uh, I'm trying once a month, we're trying to have a lunch and chat with them. And um, they felt very helpful to have someone, you know, older they could speak to and share some concerns. And I asked my colleague down there, do you guys still have the mechitza? Because... And one or two ladies would love to come, and sure enough, they showed up. So that was safety. How about this one? Here's a tzniyas. We have Here's two tzniyas things, okay? So one was they were going into an animal facility in Frederick. Frederick National Cancer Institute has a Frederick facility in Frederick, Maryland. 
And I would take them up there for the summer for one for a day just to see what was going on up there. But for this facility, you cannot, you just don't wear a lab coat. You need to wear a Tyvek suit and pants. And uh, how, we were, how were we going to do that? Basically, I skirts. Hmm. So I spoke to, uh, I spoke to my brother again. And, um, you know, it's either, no, you can't do it. But these girls want to go into science. So, you know, he didn't say no. He said, make sure they wear triple X. L, <laughs> Tyvek suits, all right? So you can't tell what's underneath. That's it. Just like you're wearing bags type of thing. And uh, that's what the girls would do. They would just wear really, really baggy safety precaution, uh, these Tyvek suits. The second Snea story, he said he had Yeah, so, so the second one is, is a little bit interesting. It's not so much as an individual story, but the concept of Sneas that the girls are educated in and that we promote is, is Torah Yidin, in a sense, it does a 180 down there. Because on one hand, there is a certain chain and it's sneeze. When walking down the hall, I experienced this. I looked up the hall, and there's these three ladies walking towards me. Normally, you don't look twice. And all of a sudden, you're like, what? Someone's wearing a skirt and a, and a long sleeve, and what? Oh, these are, my, these are my mentees. Because you don't see that. You just don't see it. They're attracting attention like a burka would. That's right. So it's interesting because there, they're dressed in its sneeze fashion and it, and it develops a certain chain and, and value. On the other hand, it's like you do double takes because you don't see that down there. So you don't, they don't blend in. The girls don't blend in. But on the other hand, that's good because you need to have boundaries. And just by dressing that way, they create a boundary. I think we covered so much. And I promised you, if you felt like you needed more time, we can do a part two potentially. <laughs> but we're over an hour now. Wow. Did we just talk for an hour? I'm so happy you're enjoying this. Is that how you are in science also? Yeah. Love it. Just love it. You know, one of the things I, I would do with the girls, just let me share one more thing, okay? What I would do with them is we, we had a WhatsApp chat and I would take a picture of a rock or a sign and I say, I would tell them in the summer, where is this? Why would I do that? Because if you're going into science, you have to start being observant. And the idea was that you have to be able to observe your experiments, observe, observe the world around you to understand what has a bunch of just shown you? Is it important? What's the moral lesson behind that? Lots of stories like that. And I wanted them to start cultivating that sensitivity that if you're going to go into science, you have to be observant. And this, this was a game we all played and they would send me, you know, rocks also. And it, uh, it was always very exciting when you realized that you were in your walk from one building to another, you knew where all the signs were and where all the rocks were. But the point is, is that everything in our life has a message for us. And every experience we have is a message. And when you take the Torah with you, even down to the NIH, and I would say in some cases, especially because you go to the NIH, where the shkacha is thick, it's just so thick there. Whatever you're doing, there's lessons to be learned. And it doesn't ha just have to be within the, the enclave of our shuls and our schools and our families. Do you so. want to restart the program or do you have hopes for that? I don't see it happening. I'm not in the intramural side anymore. My job is currently extramural on the outside. So I don't see it. I'm going to get myself to acclimate, see what kind of training programs are around. 
see if there's some way I can help out again. In the meantime, the girls, in a sense, they've all grown up and they still need mentoring. I write lots of letters of reference every year for them, for the next stages. So maybe they can become the next generation of mentees. That's I'd love for that to happen because we need, we need that structure, right? Just like there's a Joma, we need something here also for this type of thing. Now, what I would love to happen is I would love for some of the girls to come talk to you. I'd like for you to hear from them how, what they've done with their lives with science, how this program was meaningful for them. So I, I happily interview, have them reach out. I'll happily do a follow-up to this series. Thank you so much, Uncle Dan, for coming on to this podcast. It was so great having you. The Bonishom's good. He provides so much for us. He provided incredible chesed for these young ladies. The stories abound. And every time another thing would happen, you would cry because you would just see the Yad Hashem, that you could believe it was going to work, and it worked. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. If you'd like to join the WhatsApp discussion group, reach out to me. My email is in the show notes. And I did release a new song called Melody of Miriam. It's on Spotify. It will be on Apple Music soon. See you next time. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 